In 1 Corinthians, we have been addressing some of the more practical questions of Christian life. New churches, especially if you, if you go to a new church uh, that's just starting up, or a missionary church that's just sort of been birthed by gospel preaching in a pagan city, 1 Corinthians is going to become a very, very practical book that while you read it, you might go, wow, what a messed up church. Then you actually get in behind the wheel of a church or you actually get under the hood or you get meaningfully involved and you go, yeah, no, those, those Corinthians are pretty much standard Christians. Uh, the first, uh, uh, first few years, decade of, of anyone's Christian life is pretty rocky. I'm sorry if you are six years in and thinking, surely it's roses from here. It's not. Uh, and, and yet, so we've, so we've had all these interesting uh, topics covered and this is very much a topical chapter by chapter sort of book, uh, but I, I, I feel that tonight I'm, we're coming to the most awkward, uh, 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 fearful chapter for me. Uh, it's not the one that was on sexual ethics or, you know, incest or horrible things like that or disunity and all that sort of thing. That tonight is all about why the Corinthians have to pay their pastor. So let's just jump straight in and let me remind you that this is not uh, 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 some kind of plea for raise or promotion. That's not coming. This is a, a principle of Paul laying down for the churches. And uh, if I could, this would be the chapter I'd skip and keep on going. But we're expositional here, and so we will go through the Word of God. Chapter 9 reads like this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. May God bless the reading and preaching of his own inerrant and perfect scriptures. Well, the context, of course, is that it, we, we've come, this chapter is really sandwiched by two parts talking about meat that is 
sacrifice to idols. We covered some of that last week, and we're going to get to it again when we talk about when we go through chapter 10. But the grander context is Paul's speaking to the Corinthians and those who think that they're mature Christians, they've got all the theological knowledge, and therefore their conscience is just well informed and clean. They can do what they want, and they don't, uh, you know, as long as it's not directly sinful. Uh, you know, their conscience is pretty clean. They can get involved in society. They can eat here, drink here, get this tattoo, do whatever they want, eat the meat that has the, the temple, uh, uh, that, that has come from the temple idolatrous act of sacrifice, and they don't care. And Paul is exhorting them that for the sake of the other brothers, won't you, not just in this scenario, we know that we don't really struggle with that scenario here today. Uh, and yet he's saying, in all scenarios, mature Christians should be those who, while they have rights, and they know what rights they have, and they're theologically informed rights, won't you please follow in the footsteps of Christ and me, myself, Paul the Apostle, by laying down your rights for the sake of the gospel and the church and the unbelieving people around you. That's what he wants them, that's what he's exhorting them to do. And so you're going to see uh, that in verse 12, and then he's going to pick up again uh, later on in about verse uh, 15 and onwards, he's going to make the case that even though he argues very strongly, apostles and by extension pastors were to be paid by the churches they, they, they preached to, his ultimate point is, and that's the right I didn't take so that I could serve the church see more people saved, and glorify God all the more. Nonetheless, he does spend over 12, 13, 14 verses making the point that this is a right of the apostles. So just jump straight into verse 1. We're going to see that he makes the, he, he makes the case of explaining what the rights of the apostles were. <clears throat> Because you might have thought that if these guys were endowed with all the spiritual power in the church and, and whatnot, maybe, maybe they got to live in, the, uh, uh, in that same sort of way of blessing that Jesus exemplified. You remember when somebody asked him, one of his disciples, while he was walking around, they said, teacher, Jesus, do we really have to pay taxes? And, and Jesus said in this instance, he says, yes, of course you do. You still got to do that. But I know we're pretty impoverished and we don't have a buck. So go down, throw your, fish, throw your rod in the, in the lake, pull up a fish, check its mouth, there'll be some dollars. And that's what happens. So Jesus sort of just miraculously, one time only, not a promise. I'm not saying to do this. Uh, don't go checking every fish you pull up. Uh, but, but that's what, and so you might think, well, surely the apostles then just sort of had that floating over them. It, it rained gold. They, 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 they never got pebbles in their shoes. It was always dollar notes. It was always, you know, they had this kind of blessing of always having magically, divinely supplied monetary needs, but that wasn't the case. In fact, let me say it this way. It was more supernatural than that. Because God and any, any old angel could, could sort of uh, uh, make some kind of magical, supernatural miracle whereby apostles received money from heaven, sure. But an apostle, a spiritual teacher, and thereby extension pastors, as we see, to receive money, funding from former sinners who were in love with their gold, who built their lives around their gold, to see those people sacrificing their gold, their money, their food for the sake of the gospel is far more supernatural a work of the Spirit than money appearing in the bathroom. Than money popping up in your shoe. It's much more miraculous for the Spirit to do the work through the church than for God to do disconnected miracles. So that's, that's, that's what we're going to see. Now look here. 
And apostles' rights. They actually had rights that were laid down that they could claim from churches they went to. Verse 1, am I not free? Here's the point he's making with this, is that I'm not obligated by some contract I signed with the, with the diocese of Corinth that I had to serve here. Of course, I'm slave to Jesus, but I came to you because I wanted to preach the gospel to you. I wasn't there by contract. I'm free. He says, am I not an apostle? Of course, to be an apostle, you had to have certain things happen, and you, had to be, uh, and you were sent to do certain things. You can't claim yourself an apostle. And as I point out, every time we bring this topic up, because every time there is, there is confusion and misconceptions among people, there is no such thing as proper apostles today at all. They're dead. They're gone. They were only in the first century. They were so unique. But anyway, keep on going. He says, two proofs that I'm an apostle. Number one, I saw Jesus our Lord. Number two, when I went out to do the work of an apostle, which is to lay the foundation in the Gentile world, taking the gospel and breaking the bonds of, of the satanic religions off of people and seeing churches started in the fringes of the known world, I succeeded because God was with me and I was doing my apostolic work. So check and check, and he sort of makes a parenthesis here and says, even if to others I'm not an apostle. Like, okay, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, going around Corinth and Ephesus and, and Antioch and all these other places. Maybe, to, maybe there's some people I haven't preached to, I didn't start their church, I haven't healed their uncle, whatever. But you guys in Corinth, Paul is saying, I literally went to, I was the only apostle that made it that far. I'm the only guy who started your church. And, and part of what's in the background here is, is what one of Satan's favorite tactics, which is to, to send the swooping vultures of, of, of gossips around where there is an at-risk reputation. Whenever God's leaders have a, have a reputation that is, that is able to be attacked, God, uh, Satan sends in his vultures to ruin that reputation and, and start a smear campaign, and so it had happened to Paul. He had left, and super apostles had come in, and these were guys who, who, who really puffed themselves up, and the Corinthians were starting to sort of, sort of appreciate that and think, well, if these guys speak so highly of themselves, it must be true. And so here's Paul saying... Some other cushy dude straight out of Bible college came out and sure, they walked my track. They came after I went and they came and they did some pastoring among you and, and some, some works of maybe even miracles. But I'm the one who, who slaved away, who broke the new ground and who went to the fringes when no man had gone with the gospel beforehand. So, saying, so for me and you guys, we've got somewhat of a relationship. I was an apostle to you. And so he says, this is my defense. Whenever people try and tell me I'm just in this for selfish reasons, when people try and tell me I'm just in this for the money, I tell them this story, that I don't take a wage. How can he be in it for selfish reasons if he doesn't get any money out of it? But nonetheless, let's keep on going. The, uh, he starts listing the three rights that every apostle had, which we see in verse 4 and following. So go there with me. He says, number one, don't we have the right to eat and drink? It's a sad day when your pastor has to beg you to give him some food. You, you know, in this day, he's not so much packed, taking a packed lunch. He doesn't have an esky, no cooler bags. Really, the, the, he would go and, around and minister like 
traveling preachers, and the right given to the apostles was that they could go and preach somewhere and that the people listening would supply their food. That was just a common practice in traveling teachers or philosophers of the day anyway. You would go somewhere, teach, and they would put you up for a meal. And he's saying that translates to the apostles. We have a right to, after service, if there's no potluck yet, because the Corinthians just aren't at that level of maturity. That's pretty spiritually mature, having potlucks and pizzas. Because if you're not there, somebody's got to take me home and shout me lunch. I'm a guy, I need to eat. So he says, so there's this right to food. And then he says, do we not also have a right, verse 5, to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So he's making the point that the, that the apostles, and most of them did, have wives. They had a right to have wives. But you can see where, where this starts coming into the equation is, if he's talking about supporting your pastor, supporting your apostle, and he has a right to have a wife. Let me just tell you what happens when a man has a wife. They have some kids. When that happens, that support extends to his wife and children. So, so that's why he's mentioning this, that having a wife and kids means that the check at the end of the year increases. You have to support his wife. I, there's a good argument to be made here that he's arguing that, that this wife that he's bringing along with him is an, un, is a, an unemployed wife. Not, not a do-nothing idle woman, but somebody who's raising kids in the home. That's God's design to, to have her not have to go and slave away in the market and then come home because her pastor husband doesn't get any money. No, it's, he's saying that she needs to be supported as well. And then he says, do we not also, uh, verse 6, is it, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? You remember if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, to them, and these, the, this Thessalonian church was planted on the same missionary journey as when the Corinthian church was planted. He says, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, how we worked night and day so that we did not have to be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. And he says, in Ephesus, a third town, which was planted earlier, but he then visits after Corinth, in Acts 20, verse 33, he says there as well, when I was with you, I coveted no one's gold or silver or apparel, right? No clothing. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own necessities and to those who were with me. So here's Paul saying that me and Barnabas, we got the raw end of the deal. All the other guys come and utilize their rights. They get food from you. They have a wife and kids. You support them so that they don't have to work. But me and Barnabas, we come, and, and, and they were tent makers. They, they got leather together, they dyed it, they, they, stay, they, they, they tanned it, and they knitted it all together to sell tents. That was hard, hand, callous-giving work. And, and what we see when he was in uh, Ephesus, he would, he would work uh, during the day, the normal shift, and in their culture, they would have then a five-hour gap of siesta, food, rest, come back and work again in the cool afternoon. Well, Paul didn't take a rest. He didn't clock off. He put down his leatherworking gear, walked straight to the hall of Tyrannus and preached for five hours straight. Don't ever complain to me about a 45-minute sermon or an hour, and an hour and a half. Let's go. Let's be more biblical. He preached for five hours straight and then straight back to the stitching room where he labored. So his point is, we worked hard out of love for you. But it's his right. It would have been his right to, to uh, instead of working in all that way, instead to rather give himself fully to the ministry and be supported by the church. 
This is the reality that God wants us to see. Whether you're here or you go to other churches, in the future move to another city, go to plant another one, go to another country as missionaries or missionary support or for work, wherever you will be, friends, if you're a Christian, you will be, hear my pastoral exhortation here, you will continue to be vitally connected to a gospel-preaching local church, Reformed Baptist, if possible. Amen? Amen. Amen. You will never have a season of your life, I pray, where you are just outside of church, just not your habit. That season always extends longer than you plan it to be, and temptation creeps in its place. That wasn't in the notes, but it's needed to be said. Nonetheless, wherever you go, you need to know that a church is best served when a man's time and effort is not divided. I, I know some, some churches, and there's even some whole denominations who work this way, and they sort of they share all the load of the, of the leading and preaching so that no one has to take a wage. And while in some extenuating circumstances that can be possible, that's not God's wisdom. God calls certain men to lead and devote their time to the church so that through the week there can be pastoring, uh, study, there can be counseling, there can be outreach, there can be evangelism, there can be development of all sorts of things in the church. And then Sunday is, is not just his day off that he scrambled some notes together that he listened to online sermons on his way to church in the carriage. That's, that's not the way. He wants certain men, if it can only be one or two or three, depending on the size of the church, have devoted men for the, who are supported by the church. Otherwise, their efforts, their focus, their emotional and mental energy and load is divided. And so he moves to a couple of uh, pretty rock-solid examples. Look at verse 7. He just drives this home, and uh, I don't think any argument can be made against what Paul is saying here. This is verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? What soldier rocks up to the firing line, rocks up to the front line, jumps off the barge onto the beach, and, and then in, in realizing that, that he has no bullets, he, he realized the whole system in this army is you buy your own. It's BYO gun. You have to bring your own grenade and, and, and pay for your own laundry. And at the end of your service, though you defended the country, we will bill you for all of your uniform charges and all of the food that you ate. It's entirely on you. No army works that way. I don't know if you've ever, you're aware of that. That's not how it works. You sign up, they pay for your training, put a gun in your hand, give you plenty of bullets, pay for your food, send you, and when you come back, they try and look after you as well. And people might say, but we don't want to spend lots and lots and lots of money on defending our country in other countries or on our borders. You don't want to waste money doing that. What's the solution? How do you spend as little money as possible supporting, uh, strengthening and, and defending your borders? Pay and feed your soldiers well. Then, then the battles they're in will be won and you will have to spend less money retraining, resending, recouping people all of the time. Stinginess is the pathway to destruction. Or he gives another example. He says, as a farmer, look at this in the, uh, verse 7, next part, he says, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? I think men who are, who are planting their own vineyard and they're going to collect up all of the fruit, put it in baskets, send it to the shop, and then, and then have it sold for, for, for at, at the shopkeeper's uh, profit. You think they're not allowed to eat while they're going? You think they have to not touch any of the apples off the tree until it's down in the shop, and then they go down and they pay at a 
at a loss. That's not the case. Again, if you want a guy to be as effective as possible and energetic as possible and collecting as much fruit as possible, then let him eat while he goes. That is the principle. Or, of course, he says the third example here, a shepherd. This is probably the more gross one that we would say, no, I wouldn't. You know, let me put it to you. Wouldn't you, if you were looking after some sheep out in the, out in the field, wouldn't you, you know, take some of the fresh milk? And us city slickers probably go, gross, no, not squirting that up into my face from, you know, from this dirty sheep. But this was, of course, the way. They didn't have pasteurized, they didn't have Coles brand milk that they could just go buy fresh. If you're out there working, it's a hot day, you're thirsty, and you're looking after this entire flock. It's, of course, back then, it is, it is so, of course, tempting to just have a, have a fresh made milkshake right there. And, and what he's saying is no one would reprimand that guy. That's his work. If he didn't drink and he got thirsty, he fainted, or, or he was to die of dehydration, guess what happens? Every sheep there with him dies, of course. So if you want the sheep best looked after, if you want the, the most milk as possible to go to the market for sale, then let that guy drink as he needs. Of course, the principle is that what a man works at, he should expect a return on for his own sustenance. So Paul will keep on saying in verse 8, he's going to talk about the precedent from the Old Testament. But I, but I hope you're just seeing the pattern. Paul's making the case. If a guy's giving of his time to the preaching of the gospel in the unknown world and the known world as an apostle, God's plan is that those who would be saved by his ministry, whereby he's not working to make a lot of money, he's not serving you and dragging all of your cash out of your accounts, he's serving you as an apostle Jesus would have, then that man be supplied, his needs met. Not so that he's rich, not so that he's straining and poor, but so that his needs are met. And we see the same precedent in the Old Testament. Look at verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Here's Paul saying, am I, just, am I just making things up? Am I just working with even just human logic and then applying, trying to strain and hold fast your conscience simply because it seems to make sense. He goes, of course not. I'm giving to you biblical principles. And he shows us how this was even reflected back in the Old Testament. I think you'll find funny where he goes. He says, doesn't the law say the same thing? Haven't you read in the law of Moses, don't, don't tie shut the mouth of the fat cow as it's doing your work, therefore pay your pastors? Is that not a, a funny little correlation that he's making here? They had to feed their cows, so you feed the pastors. I think that could at least be degrading or twisted and misapplied in some ways. Uh, but nonetheless, he's, he points back to that old law and says, they were not allowed to, here's what it says, he's quoting, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The principle was, for those who aren't, ancient Near East agriculturally educated was that they would, they would take all of the harvest in from the field, but that those, those grains they need to be crushed and, and the, the husk removed off. So that, and usually what they would do is put a big stone on it for turning and it would grind all the bits apart. But to do that more effectively, they would put a big cow on one end of the, of the rod with a huge rock and they would walk around and they would crush all the, all the grain for you. And, and the principle was to keep that thing best fed to keep that thing working most efficiently and so that you don't have to waste time getting other food, just don't muzzle it. Keep its mouth open so that when in need, it can bend down, 
eat some of what it is helping make, and then keep on going. What a degrading example for Paul to bring up and use to the Corinthians as to why they should pay him. I think that's a sign of humility. He didn't use the example of tax, paying tax to the king. He didn't even use the example of, 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 the, of the tithe that God demanded, although we see somewhat of, of that come through. He, he uses this humble little example. And he does, of course, say, is it for ox that God is concerned? Does God actually care about cows? I'd love to say no. No, he made them for cooking. No, he doesn't really care for them at all. Let's not give our hippie brothers and sisters any, uh, any, any, any ammunition. Not that they would use ammunition. Nonetheless, that's a, that joke's running out. Let's move on. He's saying, is it really just for the ox that God wrote that? In other words, what he's saying is, and can you please employ this same practice when you read the Old Testament, he's saying, what's the context of that quote? It was not in the animal rights section of the Old Testament. It was in the economical fair trading section of the Old Testament, where he's telling the people, when you uh, collect all your harvest, don't collect right to the edges. Leave that for the poor and destitute. When you do this, leave some over for the poor and destitute. And so he'll say, and he'll say, pay fair wages. And then he also says in that context, don't muzzle an ox while it treads the grain. And Paul references that here, explaining for us with his apostolic hermeneutics, saying that's talking about people. It's just an example. So that the guy in the Old Testament who's working hard in the sun could put his hand up and say, may I please have some of the grain? The guy who's helping churn water or, or collect the milk, they can take of what they are working on. And Paul says that, if that could apply in the Old Testament, in the old world, even down to the cow, surely it can apply to the apostles and by extension to the pastors that follow them. So that's, that's sort of his, his precedent from the Old Testament. But I'm going to skip verse 12, and I'm telling you I'm doing it. So don't tell me I do it. I know I'm doing this. We're coming back to it next week. I'm not a verse skipper. Thank you for those who tell me when I do. We're coming back to 12, uh, 12b, where it says, nevertheless, and he talks about the fact that he doesn't take a right for it, and why? We'll come back to that next week. But let's uh, 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 go down to verse 13. He says, do you not know, and here's another Old Testament example, don't you know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in sacrificial offerings? This is almost definitely pointing back to the Old Testament, although there's some room to say he's just referencing how the pagans even do it in the temples in Corinth. But the way it worked was the same. In the Old Testament, part of the tithe that they would pay um, as part of really the, the Old Testament theocracy tax, would go to supporting the wages and the living and the food of the Levites and the priests. In the temple, there was actually huge storage sections of food and grain and wine and all those sorts of things because the offerings in the Old Testament was not just money. It was goods. It was grain. It was, wine, it was all of those things. And so that would be kept as payment for the sons of Aaron and Levi who served in the, in the, in the temple. He says, if that happened then, let's also think that that would be reasonable to continue on now. And he also says that those who are at the altar, at the altar, what a picture for pastoral ministry. So far, we've seen, let me just make a note here to any who would 
hope for or pray for, and I'm praying for, uh, possible and potential and hopeful ministers in the future, coming up out of the young man from this church. But let's just be real and look at the pictures that Paul uses of pastoral ministry. So far, he's said uh, a cow, and that's insulting in itself. Let's move that to the side, though. Humanly speaking, he does uh, speak of an athlete in chapter 10 as one who doesn't box the air, but he's one who's fighting for the gold belt. He's getting bloodied and bruised and sweaty. He's working hard. That's one picture. But we just saw the other three earlier when he said that he is like a soldier. Okay? They're not shooting Nerf bullets. They're not in the Roman army swinging around paddles. They're in training. They are actually swinging blades, taking lives, defending the nation, working hard, getting fit. He uses the example of farmer, someone who sows strenuously and waits long years or, or months to see the real income of all that he's done. And he's used the example of a shepherd one who is with the, the, those things or people or animals that he's looking after, getting dirty, getting grimy, not often respected by society, but getting the work done. And then finally, he's used here a butcher. A butcher. Maybe, maybe when you think of sacrificial service in the Levite system or in the Old Testament system, you think of something very pretty, lots of white gowns that stayed white and candles, and, and swinging uh, incense, and things like that. Let me tell you, the, the work was the work of a butcher. You bring in, sometimes it's wine and grain, and they put that on the altar, and it smells great. Most of the time, you're bringing in your little budgie, or your little piglet. They never use pigs, but in the temple of the, of the Corinthians, they would bring in their piglets, or, 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 or they would bring in the sheep, right? That you, you don't name, but you have to bring your kids to watch the sacrifice, because that's what God wanted you to do, to see the effects of sin. And the, the wonderful, loving pastor, priest, would take your little family pet that you've reared from birth. They would break its neck, slice its throat, spill it all out, gut it on the table, put some parts over here, put other parts over here, boil some, give some back to you, burn the rest. You have to go carry that part out. You would sometimes be given the bowels to take out of the temple. Thank you very much. You do the bin run. And the Levite would, and in, other, in different parts of the sacrificial uh, allotments, would keep some for eating. It's a butchery kind of job. Let's just, with all those pictures in mind, a cow, a soldier, a farmer, a shepherd, and a butcher, let's just remind ourselves, young men aspiring for the ministry, and all those maybe you know who are, who you want to encourage, it is not an easy, soft job. Paul doesn't use the picture of, you know, like a spiritual manicurist. Or, or a spiritual uh, artist who uses fine, you know, fine-toothed uh, brushes, whatever. He doesn't use that example. He uses gutsy, hard work. And I, I want us to realize that Paul's life was difficult as he served. And if you'll take up the mantle, young men, to be a preacher of the gospel, a herald of the word, a leader of people, a servant of God's church. You must be able to have a work ethic that fits something like an Olympic athlete, farmer, soldier, and oxen. Pray for that. Charles Spurgeon used to say that this was one of the things that was the most, the, the, one of the most important parts of Christ-likeness in aspiring ministers was a work ethic. Never out of a job, always sweating at doing something, always busy in the work of God and his people. But let's continue to move on. That is a tangent. 
So here we have all these precedents, all these pictures of Paul, and really we've just made one point tonight, haven't we? Just been making one point, and I take as long as I do to do it, because I, I feel like Paul does. He's simply saying, if there is work done by somebody for the church, they should be receiving from that same work. Just what they, what they, not just enough to get by, but what they need for sustenance, them and their family. <clears throat> we also see, if you can look with me to verse 13 to 14. We've seen the Old Testament sacrifice examples of, the, of 13, and in 14, we see him referencing Jesus Christ, the commandments that Jesus gave himself. Verse 14 says, in the same way, right, in the same thing I've been saying, like, I sometimes wonder why he waited till the end to quote Jesus. Wasn't that really the first one out of the bat? Well, he wanted to make all of these cases, from, you know, everyday examples, from common sense, from Old Testament examples that can be stretched to us, and now he brings it home with Jesus, his own words. He says, in the same way, the Lord commanded, commanded. Here's, here's the context. He's commanding the preachers, not the churches, not the towns that will receive the preachers, the preachers themselves. He's commanding them with a principle. He says, He commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living or their income by the gospel. He's referencing here Jesus' words in Luke chapter 10. And this is when he sends out his, his disciples to go throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and Israel and preach to them. Go and preach the gospel that the king has come and they ought to come and follow me. Hear my teaching over that of the Pharisees for the kingdom is being established in this very generation. And, and as they went out, what he told them practically to do is not take extra backpacks full of food and money and walking sticks. Don't do that. He said, rather, when you get to the town... Find a house of somebody who is welcoming and peaceful and don't even bother about moving house to house so you're not too much of a, lo uh, a burden on someone. You deserve to be a burden on somebody. So he says in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says, remain in that one house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Paul picks that up and says to those, even in the time before the crucifixion and resurrection and, and sending of the Spirit, before all of that, Jesus was still commanding them, preaching an obscured gospel that they should be supported. Of course, now when the revelations have come full, when the mysteries have been opened, that those men doing that should be supported as able. In 1 Timothy 5 verse 7, Paul is writing again, to Timothy and explaining to him how the church should work. And here's where we really get the passage to tie them all together. Jesus' application, which wasn't really to churches, it was to the disciples. And, and Paul taking Old Testament examples, which is to animals, not to pastors, though similar they may be. He says, what really ties them together is this verse. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, speaking of elders in the local church. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Now, I know, um, I know how we think. We might go, well, double honor means a really firm handshake. Like, I'm going to look him in the eye, and I'm going to double honor him then. I'm going to give him a high five. 
You know, I'll write him a card. And while that may be all good and well as part of what honoring means, it's obvious from the context. He means financial support because he says the following, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So he's talking of those giving their life to the teaching role so that they don't have the time to split up with other jobs. And he says, verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then he quotes Jesus. The laborer deserves his wages. It ties it all together. Jesus is clearly teaching. In, in Luke, Jesus is clearly teaching through Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 that God's pattern of men being supported by the people of God if they're serving the people of God or by the flock if they're tending the flock or by the, the field if they're tending the field, they should be supported by those things that they are doing. And I need to just draw a real line in the sand here and, and relieve all of our question in the back of our mind that, that, that we need to separate ourselves from the prosperity preachers and teachers of today, if we can even call them that. The, that they will take passages like this and put on the conscience of those dear Christians who listen and at home on TV and wherever, that you need to, to receive blessings from God. You have to be giving generously to me and my ministry, they might say. So they'll use these passages, we've all heard it, we've all seen it, and it's laughable. But it still sticks with us enough that we get to passages like this and say, it just feels a little awkward, and it just feels a little bit worldly that a pastor would be telling other pastors that they should tell their people that pastors deserve money. Let me say, firstly, that, that those uh, are not true churches uh, that, that preach that way, as we've seen. But, but also that those systems, they're just Ponzi schemes. Here's how it works often, in, in dangerous, and there needs to be bylaws and care taken and stringent policies around how money is collected. Let me assure you, that, that's what we do. Ask what questions you need to. That's what we, we protect here. But, but, but so often it's, it's that you're not giving to the work of the church, the thousands in the, in the stadium, the thousands at home. They're all giving to one particular guy. Or, or sometimes in churches, you'll, you'll, they'll go there and, 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 and the, the, the offering for the day, whatever it is, it all goes to the pastor. And, and they may be getting ten, twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. I'm not even stretching beyond what I have personally heard pastors to get in one day. And, and, and so it's not a, a, a simple thing that, that, that they... And this is why, maybe this has been your background, this is why they have giving sermons, right? you know, a, a two or three minute offering message so they really rile everybody up and get you real liberal with your cash. This is because they, they, this is an unbiblical system where everything given today goes to the pastor. Let's not forget that the pastor, the men of God, the preachers, whatever those guys want to call themselves, but also the biblical ones need to be also protected from the love of money. That doesn't mean keep them poor, keep them holes in their shoes and hungry so that they need new batteries. That's why we need our rings. Is that working? We good? There we go. All right, let's wrap up. Let's, let's start pulling this to a close. Go back to verse 11. This is where Paul goes for the heart. I don't mean heart to convict and heart to attack. I mean, he goes to the heart of his people. He simply asks them a question. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, that is the gospel, that is the word of God, that is 
healed afflictions, that is, renewed marriages and families, that is, uh, uh, addictions and sins broken, that is, holiness, that is, churches planted and eternities saved from hell. Paul says, did we sow that among you? And as that raises up and comes to fruition, is it too much, he says in verse 11, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So I want to ask us the question today. This is not a question of if you give any money. It's been said, I, I couldn't find the quote of exactly who it was. it was. It was somebody a few hundred years ago. He said, God does not care how much you give. He cares how much you keep. As an example of the, of the widow who gave much, he, Jesus looked at how much she kept, which was nothing, rather than how much was being given. Nonetheless, this is not a question. This is an absolute fact that our giving, our, our money reflects our values. Where we put our money reflects our values. And so Paul is saying here, if it's too much for you to give material things which wither, which you won't take to heaven, if that's too much for you to give in response of spiritual, eternal fruit, then your value system is wrong. Your, your value economical system is broken. We often talk about exchange rates. I take a dollar over to America, how much is that really going to be good for? Each one of us have a spiritual, economic exchange rate going on. I give this much, not worth what I'm going to get. Not worth, or what I have received is not worth the letting go of, of my comfortable extra spending. So Paul wants to ask, are we valuing what we receive from the Lord God? Through missions, through whatever it may be, whether you're on the... Uh, uh, um, on the mission field or whether you're a first generation Christian in a pagan society or here, are you valuing what you are receiving as more worthy than silver and gold? And let me just say this, that it's easier to, to think things look okay. We're pretty good. Corporately, it's all right. My, my, my pastor most of the time wears clothes without holes in them. He sort of is able to, to, a shave, to, to afford a, 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 a blade to shave. He doesn't look homeless. It's, it's okay. We're fine. I don't need to give. That's all good. What Paul wants us, I think, to, to consider is not just a, a corporate, is some money being given? Because that might just be one dude up the back who's got a massive paycheck. But personally, individually, ask yourself this question. If everybody in the congregation gave the same percentage that you give to the Lord and his work in the church, could the church function? Think of the percentage you give of, out of your income, and this is the point that Paul says, give in ratio with how much each person earns. It's not an amount, it's a heart. It says if everybody, for you guys, if, if everybody was to give exactly the percentage that you gave, how would the church's account look well, the encouragement from Jesus to his disciples when he told them, take no money. And the encouragement tonight is, that, is those echoing words from Jesus. Freely you have received. Freely we also should give. Freely, he told the disciples, you have received the message of the gospel. Now, freely preach to them. There is no cost. And, and I have the unparalleled privilege and honor and glory to say to you tonight, to be the one for you tonight, proclaiming the eternal, 
unending, divine gospel of Jesus Christ who is enthroned and blessed forever as the highest God, King, and Lord that ever has been or will be. Jesus speaks through us tonight to let you know that he reigns and he reigns to rule over a people that has been ransomed out of this sin-sick world. Those people who are in his kingdom, who are forgiven, adopted, cleansed, and loved, are those who come to him by faith alone, no money in hand, no works in hand, no nothing. You, you need nothing to come to Jesus. Just come. Because in his living, he lived the life we should have lived. In his dying, he died the death we deserved and never could have paid. In his resurrection, he assured and confirmed to us that the Father will receive anybody who comes to him through Jesus Christ. So for your sin, maybe financial sins, maybe stinginess, maybe theft, wherever you sit condemned by the law and standards of God today, I offered you free grace in Jesus Christ. Come to him by faith and be completely forgiven and freed. And for all of those who have been so saved, so brought into his kingdom with, for, with everlasting joy, you and I have the privilege of taking part in the gospel movement called the Great Commission. Can you bow your heads? I'm just going to pray over us. We're going to wrap up and spend time together. Father God, we thank you for our provisions. We thank you for this church and the way that you raise up people within it and you've been uh, doing your gospel work through us. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel work you do in us, that there are people coming to maturity, people coming to faith, people coming to serve, people coming to be sent out. We thank you so much, Lord. We pray for more and more and more of the work of your spirit among us because we are nothing, we are weak, and we are needy. We pray, Lord, that you would use this church with our missionary arm in South Asia with whatever else the future holds for us, Lord, we pray that you would utilize and empower us by your spirit to see souls saved and Jesus glorified. I pray for each of us that we would be sure that we are in the faith. We are a friend of Jesus. We have been forgiven by his, his merits. We have been washed by his blood. That anybody who, who questions that would spend time tonight, Lord, in prayer and speaking to a Christian friend to to really discern where they are at with you. Lord, I pray for salvation to come to their souls tonight. We pray also, Lord, that the money in this church would be freely given generously, but that would be protected and used wisely for your most holy gospel. For there is nothing else more worthy, more rewarding, more joy-giving that we can join in than that. And we thank you, Lord, for the work of your Spirit here tonight. And everybody said, Amen.